You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. Uh, delighted today to be uh, joined again by Sebastian Strangio, The Diplomats Southeast Asia editor. Sebastian, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Good, Ankit. Uh, good to speak to you again. Absolutely, Sebastian. Uh, I'm glad to have you back on today, uh, since we'll uh, turn gears a little bit on this episode and uh, get back to COVID-19, uh, the story that we certainly spent a lot of time covering in 2020. But of course, as I think is very much apparent uh, to uh, Asians in particular, especially as things are changing here in the United States, the pandemic is still very much here. Um, we did a recent podcast talking about the reaction, of course, in India after uh, India's devastating second wave in May. Uh, now in Southeast Asia, Indonesia is in the midst of a terrible wave of COVID-19 as well. Vaccination rates are slowly picking up, but certainly uh, Southeast Asia is far from uh, out of the out of the COVID-19 storm. Uh, but Sebastian, uh, today I thought we could talk a little bit about, uh, of course, the geopolitical aspects of so-called vaccine diplomacy when it comes to COVID-19 in the region. You know, vaccines have had a place in diplomacy and geopolitics. Uh, I mean, really going back to uh, the days of the Cold War in many ways. Countries, uh, you know, there are obviously intrinsic reasons to vaccinate the world, and there are good medical reasons to vaccinate the world, namely that the faster we vaccinate people, the less likely it is that new variants of COVID-19 or other diseases will be able to emerge as quickly. But of course, uh, intrinsic motivators aren't often enough uh, for political leaders, and there are certain ex external motiva uh, motivations at play. Uh, countries see vaccines as a mean to sow the seeds on which they hope to potentially reap a return on investment in the form of prestige, soft power, um, goodwill, uh, you know, less, uh, you know, more directly speaking, a, a sort of sort of indebtedness. And of course, I think, uh, you know, we've we've seen some of that in terms of how um, folks have talked about the Chinese approach to vaccine diplomacy. China has uh, really uh, made an attempt to make the most of its uh, two major uh, domestic vaccines, Sinovac produced by a private company and the Sinopharm vaccine, which is produced by a state-owned enterprise, to uh, distribute that to as much of the world as possible. And certainly this has been, been in play in Southeast Asia. Uh, but Sebastian, uh, you know, the uh, the timing of this podcast, of course, I think comes on the, um, the back of news last week that Malaysia uh, was uh, beginning to stop the administration of the Sinovac vaccine uh, in the country, um, particularly amid mounting evidence that the vaccines just have, the Chinese vaccines have slightly more limited efficacy against the Delta variant, which is the main variant of concern right now. But before we sort of zoom out and talk a little bit more about Southeast Asia more broadly, uh, walk us through a little bit about, uh, you know, the situation in Malaysia. What what are the conditions that really led to uh, KL's decision or, you know, Putrajaya's decision to, uh, to pull back on... Um, um, implementing uh, Sinovac? Well, you know, the short answer is, you know, is the, the increasing evidence that th these vaccines have limited effect efficacy against the Delta variant, as you said. Um, I think it's quite clear, even though we don't quite know exactly how eff effective they are, there's, you know, increasing evidence that, you know, compared to the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, the mRNA vaccines um, developed in the West, um, you know, th they're less effective. Um, in Indonesia, for instance, medical workers who've been vaccinated, fully vaccinated with Sinovac are still getting ill. Um, I think there's a sense that, you know, Sinovac is better than nothing. And, and that, you know, it, you know, that had those workers not been vaccinated at all, they probably would have died in much larger numbers and been much more severely ill. Um, but still, you know, this is sort of, you know, <clears throat> it's only logical for the Malaysian government if it has access to Pfizer um vaccines as it does or as it will um to you know plan a phase out of the less effective of the two um uh, you know i think i think that it's really just uh, the government 
looking out for its own interests. Mm-hmm. So last uh, last year, uh, you know, Chinese President Xi Jinping um, proclaimed publicly that that Chinese made vaccines would become a a quote global public good. Uh, this was sort of at the start of China's attempt at sort of sowing the seeds of vaccine diplomacy. So t- taking a step back and looking at how China has done this in Southeast Asia, uh, can you walk us through sort of the approaches that Beijing has really taken to uh, to the varying member states of ASEAN? Um, what are the terms on which China has approached these countries about um, uh, in terms of uh, acquiring Chinese vaccines? I think China's general, you know, offer. Um, to the world and to the region has been to contrast itself with the Western countries that are focused overwhelmingly on vaccinating their own populations. China is seeking to position itself as a champion of the developing world. I mean, its vaccines, the, the Sinopharm and Sinovac, you know, just in terms of their characteristics are, are tend to be cheaper and more um, portable um, than you know the Pfizer vaccines that need to be stored at very cold temperatures, um, and so and and China is also as it has said about you know producing hundreds of millions of doses for its own population has also put a premium on you know presenting itself as a you know <clears throat> as a leader of the developing world in terms of COVID the COVID response. Um, Generally, in Southeast Asia, in Southeast Asia, of course, has been a focus of China's um, vaccine outreach. I think about a quarter of the vaccines that China has donated have gone to Southeast Asia, and about thirty percent of those that it's sold. Um, and you know, as I suggested, you know, that the, it's been a mix of of donations and um, commercial transactions. Um, in terms of you know quid pro quos, I mean, there there's been a lot of talk about China extracting concessions from countries um, in order to um, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in return for, you know, vaccines that they sorely need. We haven't seen that in such an explicit way in Southeast Asia. I think a, a lot of these things, as always with Chinese diplomacy, are very implicit, you know, sort of that friends help out friends. And there's sort of an expectation that will come back around further down the track. But, um, you know, I can't recall any instances of, of explicit quid pro quos being offered. I think there have been in the cases of some countries that currently recognize Taiwan, um, you know, China has very explicitly said, you know, we'll give you vaccines if uh, I can't think of the exact examples off the top of my head. But there have been cases where China has you know, explicitly offered this in return right. for diplomatic recognition. Um, but in Southeast Asia, I haven't seen anything exactly. But that's not to say that there isn't sort of an implied quid pro quo there. Right. Um, of course, with the, you know, given the limited efficacy of Chinese vaccines, you know, the, the, you know, Beijing's ability to sort of um, you know, extract that quid pro quo might now be compromised. And, and you know, this is really an interesting turning point in, in, in China's vaccine outreach to the region. Not to get too, uh, too into the weeds on the quid pro quo thing, but, uh, you know, one example comes to mind, I think, uh, I think last year, and maybe this isn't explicit, but certainly I think, you know, depends on one's perspective, I suppose. In, in Malaysia, I believe there was the incident uh, concerning the Malaysian government detaining, um, I believe it was Chinese fishermen, uh, that had been held, and there was the issue of potentially Chinese diplomats bringing up the issue of vaccine donations at the same diplomatic meeting where the issue of the detained mm-hmm. fishermen was being discussed. So I believe the perception, at least in Malaysia, was that that was an attempt to very gently um, link the two issues, so to speak. So, you know, perhaps those kinds of subtle arrangements were were being um, brought up. I'm not sure if you're, you know, familiar with that, but uh, but you know, I'd be interested to yeah. hear your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I do actually. I, I do remember that that case now. Um, you know, I think it was all very, uh, you know, as you say, they were sort of brought up, you know, subtly, you know, in the same, uh, you know, in the same phase of the meeting. Um, and 
Look, I, I think that the response of the Malaysian government to that gives an indication that, you know, these sorts of quid pro quos are, are probably not going to be received very well in Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, um, China is presenting itself as a friend to the region that's offering, you know, things as, as, you, as, as Xi Jinping put it, as a global public good. As soon as it starts extracting these sorts of, you know, or expecting these sorts of quid pro quos, I think that, that any soft power benefit that China might be reaping, and I think those benefits have already been limited, will be compromised. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, it's, um, I mean, in a broader sense, I think that, that China's ability to generate soft power through its vaccine outreach has been undermined in many cases by its continued, um, you know, ex uh, exercise of hard power in the South China Sea. Um, you know, it's, it's command over the upper waters of the Mekong River. Um, you know, none of these problems, none of these concerns have gone right. away. And there's only so much that vaccine outreach can do to to address these concerns without actually addressing the concerns themselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, so as you said, I mean, uh, Southeast Asian leaders like leaders, uh, you know, most leaders around the world have taken a very pragmatic approach to to managing and containing the pandemic. So, you know, it's it's often easy for analysts to talk about the notion of vaccine diplomacy and the, and the role of vaccines in, in, in geopolitics in Asia and elsewhere. But from the perspective of these countries, I mean, as you said, you know, Sinovac is better than nothing in many cases. Uh, you know, taking a step back again, I mean, just kind of looking around the region right now, um, what is, and obviously, you know, we're talking about, you know, 10 countries, uh, 10 member states of ASEAN plus East Timor here. I mean, it's a big region with, with diverse polities and, and approaches. But in your sense, I mean, what is the... What is the Southeast Asian exit strategy right now for COVID nineteen? And I and I know that's a very you know difficult question to take on uh, head on, but I mean you know we see we see obviously a devastating surge in Indonesia, uh, a divergent mm. approaches around the region, uh, Vietnam, which had once been very successful, now seeing more cases as well. Um, when you look around Southeast Asia, what's your sense of uh, how things are uh, likely to play out with COVID nineteen? Well, it's it's. Another example of this remarkable phenomenon that the countries that were best in containing COVID have been the worst at, at, at rolling out vaccines right. and vice versa. Um, it, you know, it's, I mean, in Southeast Asia, you obviously have countries that are, you know, that, that have less money. Um, so that, they, you know, they've naturally been sort of limited in how many vaccines they can acquire and how quickly, but you still see, you know, a re remarkably like lackadaisical attitude toward vaccine rollouts in places like Thailand and Malaysia. Um, which of course have been compounded by political dysfunction of you know various varying degrees. So um, I mean, currently the region you know stands on the precipice of a, a real disaster. I mean, you know, in in most countries in the region, um, you know, cases are trending upwards. In some cases, vertically, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Myanmar are all in in the midst of serious outbreaks. Um, Cambodia uh, is facing a serious situation as well as is Thailand. Um, the Philippines seems to have got things relatively under control, but, you know, it's, again, given given its large population, its slow vaccine rollout, I mean, another outbreak is only, you know, uh, could happen at any moment. Um, and the concerning thing in Southeast Asia is the low level of vaccination. I mean, right. you know, Singapore is right out in front. Um, I can't remember the most recent figure, but we're talking about maybe half the population being fully vaccinated. Cambodia, interestingly enough, which, you know, and an interesting sign in terms of Chinese vaccine outreach is second in terms of proportional uh, the proportion of people vaccinated i think it's sitting at around a quarter of the population now um but the region as a whole is still very far away from achieving um widespread vaccine coverage and you know the amount of time that it takes for that to happen could lead to the emergence of the, the creation of new variants that could you know many epidemiologists fear be you know resistant to all of the available vaccines and so 
you know, I think that there's an indication that the the COVID challenge in Southeast Asia is still very much at the beginning. I mean, we've we've only seen the beginnings of the economic impacts of the of the crisis as well, and I think that you know most of the region had banked on vaccines being the ladder out of the uh, crisis. This is particularly the case um, in the case of Jokowi's Indonesia. You know that had all you know had never really handled the containment as well as some of its neighbours. Put all of its chips in on um, on vaccines. And now, you know, is, is facing the challenges posed by the limited limited efficacy of the Chinese vaccines, plus right. the generally sluggish nature of the vaccine rollout into, especially into remote parts of the Indonesian archipelago. So, you know, things are, you know, the, the region faces, a, you know, a pretty challenging second half of 2021, I think. No, yeah, I think, uh, I think sadly, that's, that's right on the money. And, uh, you know, I mean, if there is a, a somewhat somewhat of a sliver of hope. I mean, the Biden administration, you know, despite its early kind of insular approach to vaccination, focusing on American citizens has now begun to turn its attention outwards. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, it's a big world. American priorities are, are divergent. So Southeast Asia doesn't seem to be at the top of the agenda right now. But um, but perhaps that might change depending on the public health situation. I think, uh, especially the situation in Indonesia, I know has gotten, um, you know, attention here in Washington. Mm. So so we'll see how that develops. Um, so Sebastian, you know, before we close out the discussion today, though, I did want to ask you about the bottom line on this whole notion of, you know, vaccine diplomacy and the and the inner uh, the potential intersections with geopolitics. You know, Southeast Asian countries don't tend to make sharp turns when it comes to either the U.S. or China. Uh, we see a relative degree mm-hmm. of continuity. There's sort of no single issue that's largely likely to tip, um, you know, tip uh, a single country's perspective. I mean, maybe it's actually, you know, domestic politics more than anything. And I think the case of the Philippines probably attests that the best uh, under under Duterte. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to vaccines, COVID-19 uh, and, and China, do you see this, uh, you know, do you see, I mean, Chinese outreach to Southeast Asia on vaccines, on public health, uh, fundamentally changing how these countries view um, their relationships with China? Or are we likely going to see, you know, more familiar variables like um, economic proximity, ge- uh, a geographic proximity really determine uh, the course these countries do take in their relations with China? Well, I think China's vaccine outreach, you know, has had a limited effect on Southeast Asian perceptions of China. I mean, you know, as you say, those perceptions are generally rooted in um, the realities of proximity and economic necessity. Um, you know, having to live with China and wanting to benefit from its rise while safeguarding against some of the perils. Um, the vaccine diplomacy hasn't really addressed any of the concerns um, that the region has about China, particularly those countries that are facing, you know, th- that have disputed claims in the South China Sea and face the hard edge of China's, you know, military and naval modernization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and by the same token, I think that the, you know, the potentially limited efficacy of Chinese vaccines will also have, you know, won't dent China's, um, you know, uh, per- perceptions of China in the region d- to a huge degree. Uh, I think that these views tend to be fairly inelastic um, and that, you know, China still looms, uh, you know, given the economic interact, you know, ties between the two regions, still looms as a very important part of Southeast Asia's recovery from COVID. Um, uh, I think that that's a sense that you know th- that's certainly a message that Chinese diplomats have consistently been underlining that you know that China is is in it with Southeast Asia. You know, the two regions will recover together, um, and I think that that you know that necessity will continue to underpin Southeast Asian responses to. Um, to China in the years to come. I mean, of course, you know, the fact that these Chinese vaccines have proven to be less, eff- you know, less efficacious than some of the, you know, what competing Western vaccines will no doubt, you know, dent Chinese prestige, mm-hmm. 
you know, and there's certain it'll certainly underscore the general suspicion that a lot of Southeast Asian publics have about, you know, the quality of Chinese made goods, you know, some of which, of course, are rooted in prejudice um, as well. Um, but I think that, you know, in the halls of power in Southeast Asian countries, we're going to see probably a, a fairly consistent um, approach toward China in the years to come, which is basically about trying to benefit from, you know, the, 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 the very thick economic t ties that now exist with China while, you know, um, you know, seeking to uh, counterbalance um, China's growing power by, by maintaining good relationships with as many other uh, regional powers as possible, including, of course, the United States. Sebastian Strangio, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your insights. It was great to have you on the episode today. Thanks, Argent. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. For listeners, if you're new to the Asia Geopolitics podcast, I highly recommend that you subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. We're, we're pretty much everywhere. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really helps us expand our audience. And finally, I always love to hear from our listeners. So if you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like covered on a future episode or a guest you'd like me to invite on, please do just get in touch with me. You can do that either via email or through Twitter, where I'm available at at NKTPND. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode.